On June 25, 1950, the United States Marine Corps was called upon to go to war once again. They were called to Korea. The 1st Marine Division needed to be quickly restored to combat footing from the short break since World War II. Major General O.P. Smith handpicked what some considered to be the greatest leatherneck in history to the job. This man's name was Louis B. Puller. However, most Marines know him as Chesty Puller. Some say that he earned his nickname due to his perfect posture and that his chest resembled a full-size beer keg of lead brick, raw muscle, and horse steroids. Another account says that his original chest had been shot away and that his new chest was a steel plate. Chesty Puller was fiercely loyal to his men. His motto was, lead by example, and proved that was not an empty slogan. He would deny the comforts that came with his officer's rank in order to stay with his men. He would carry his own mess gear, pack, and bedding roll while marching at the head of his battalion. He slept where his men slept and ate where they ate. So when he was tasked with leading the first Marines into battle, he led in a manner that furthered his legendary status. After Chesty and his men had been dispatched to a remote area in North Korea to search for the enemy, they had just set up camp near Chosen Reservoir when suddenly the Chinese People's Liberation Army surrounded their position. Journalists in the Marine camp confronted Chesty, demanding to know what he planned to do. Chesty calmly replied, We've been looking for the enemy for several days now. We're surrounded. That simplifies our problem of finding these people and killing them. Chesty was so confident that the enemy was just where he wanted them, that when a major asked about a line of retreat, Chesty radioed the base's artillery commander and ordered him to fire on any soldier who abandoned his position. He and his men fought every step of the way. Chesty not only succeeded in saving the living men, but brought all of the wounded and dead back home. They destroyed seven Chinese divisions. For his service in Chosen Reservoir, the Navy rewarded Chesty Puller his fifth Navy Cross. The King's Hall Podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is the kind of ethos and spirit to which we are commending you <laughs> when we talk about the doctrine known as post-millennialism. <laughs> and, and by the way, Chesty Puller, Dan, he was a hard man. Yeah. Is Eric advertising his own podcast? Yes. Right now? <laughs> no, I think no I mean, the number of that was his fifth Navy cross. And wow. a lot of people say he was he was uh, he was screwed because he sh it's the next lowest reward or award from the Medal of Honor. Medal of Honor. And they say he should have won it. And there's a lot of controversy Maybe around multiple it. times. But I mean, he won five. Wow. Five. So uh, the, the, the man. Legend. Yeah. He served for 37 years before he was medically retired. And then the U.S. went to war in Vietnam and he recommissioned and they said, you can't come back. They were like chesty. You I'm sorry. can't yeah, come back. Can't come the back. Viet Cong, it, it would be unfair. Yeah, I mean, he the, the stories about this guy. If you're if you're a marine, you know like way more about him than I just learned about him like 15 minutes ago <laughs> and wrote this story. So uh, it's amazing. Look him up, Chesty Puller. Chesty Puller, I think, embodies one of the the main. You know, I I use the word ethos at the at the beginning here uh, that we're aiming for in in cultivating in this show and that we believe will not only is essential to Christianity, but it's definitely essential to Christendom. If you want to see any kind of Christendom established, you're going to need a lot of men and women who have that same spirit that say, oh, we're surrounded. Well, we've got them right where we want them now. Like, well, now they, they certainly can't slip away again. This, this simplifies our task. 
And, and to me, like we're, we're recording this in the heart of Ogden, Utah, where we're like, you know, I, we say 2% Protestant Christian or so in this area. And, and, and even that is misleading because it's like 2% Protestant Christian. And, and we're always talking about reformed Catholicity. There are like 18 reformed Christians in the entire state of Utah, <laughs> you know, like, like vanishingly few and probably like 60% of them are mad at the other 40% for some reason or the other in classic reformed fashion. So, you know, we definitely identify with that being surrounded. But the reason that we shared that story at the beginning of this, this episode is because in this episode, uh, you're going to hear a lot about post-millennialism. You're going to hear a lot about even, you know, theonomy and theonomic post-millennialism in an interview with Chocolate Knox with David Shannon that our, our very own Eric Kahn sat down and recorded with them. And uh, so, so we wanted you to, you know, we wanted to frame it up front here by kind of giving you a definition and the spirit, like the, the letter and the spirit of, of what we're telling you to aim for in this podcast. And so the spirit for, for certain, and we've emphasized this several times, is that we want you, whether you end up actually agreeing and saying, yes, I'm post-millennial or theonomic or you know, whatever, or, or if you're like, no, I'm, I'm historic premillennialist or I'm amillennial and I'm, I'm kind of optimistic, but, I, but, but whatever you land on, we want you to have this spirit. And we believe that you ought to have this spirit where you say, no, no matter what I think is going to happen in the future, I know my task. And my task that the Lord Jesus gave is to make disciples of the nations and to baptize them, to teach them to obey all Christ commanded. And so I better start doing that right here at my feet in my own life and in my own house and in my own church and in my own region uh, in the hope that, that I guess if you're like premillennial, maybe in the hope that you're wrong, (laughs) but uh, in the hopes that you would see ground taken in your lifetime, even if you don't expect as we expect for uh, the majority of the world to be converted in history, even if you don't expect that as we expect, um, we would hope that you would want that, that you'd look at that and you'd say, that'd be great. I'd be for that. Let me quickly define post-millennialism since uh, we might not have, uh, it might not have been, you know, very precisely defined in the, in the interview, uh, you know, as these things go. So post-millennialism is the belief, it's the eschatological position that Christ will return at the end of the millennium that's described in Revelation 20. That's what it's called post-millennium. And specifically, there are multiple versions of, of post-millennialism. Um, the, 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 the one that is, I think, probably popular today is in, and that I hold, I actually haven't asked these guys if they both agree with this, but I believe that we're in the millennium now, right? Yeah. We all on the same page there. Yeah. There's some version of post-millennialism that believes there will be a literal thousand years in the future that will be in, like, inaugurated at some moment maybe a tipping point where the world is more Christian than not. We, like we the be- golden age. Yeah. The golden age. Yeah. We believe that the, the, the millennium, the thousand years of revelation 20 is describing the entire period of what we might call church history from the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the judgment of Jerusalem through the return of Christ. And that during that period, though there will be many ups and downs that the story of history will be the story of the conquest of Christ over the nations by their conversion and subduing such that by the time Christ returns, he will return to a world where there are much, you know, many more Christians than not. And in a nutshell, that's what post it's another way you could say it is that we believe the great commission will be successful. Or another way to say it is Jesus said the kingdom of God is like yeast that was put into three measures of flour. 
and it grew until the whole thing was leavened. It's actually against the rules to use the Bible verses. Oh yeah. Um, sorry. Actually, I was thinking also yeah. of the mustard seed, which is Unfair. the smallest of all seeds and it That's grew into right. a great tree yeah. that shadowed everything it, and it, the birds nested in its it trees. Would, it'd be unfair as well to mention the or stone it's like Daniel. Yeah. that was cut out by no human <laughs> hands. It strikes the clay feet of empire and you know, such that they blow away like dust while the stone becomes a mountain and covers the world. That would also be unfair to mention, right? That would also be, be unfair. unfair. It's yeah. interesting. Uh, Chalk in the interview will say this, but I thought one of the things that was helpful on this point was he said, really, I'm just asking you in asking somebody to be, you know, post-mill or optimistic in their eschatology, really just asking you to believe the gospel will be effective. That's pretty, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what we're saying. Yeah. Right. We're saying that the gospel will save a lot of people. So that another, you know, another unfair thing to say would be that like, when Christ returns, the world will not look like a field of weeds with a few straggling strands of wheat suffering valiantly in, <laughs> in different corners, but then it will look like a wheat field. It, yeah, it has some weeds in it, but it will look like a wheat field, right? So I think he's talking to the wheat and tares illustration. I think he is. Know, no. Jesus, you know. Is that in? Is that We're in not allowed the, to That's in the Bible. Parables. I'm sorry. That's in the Bible. You it's weren't cheating. supposed to talk. I want to apologize. No, no, no. I know our, our brothers that may hold slightly different eschatological beliefs would never think that this is a weed field. No, they wouldn't. The slow demise of humanity (laughs) and (laughs) the losing mission of Christ as he's ruling and reigning at the right hand. You guys don't believe that, do you? The long (laughs) decline of creation into chaos. Yeah. Uh, No, I'm sorry. So you're going to hear a lot about this, these kind of things in the interview. (laughs) And you'll also hear about uh, theonomy. Chuck, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric. He, he came to be a theonomist before he was postmillennial. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, I think he said uh, through Marcus Pittman, um, he had kind of come into theonomy and uh, again, not something he'll, he'll explain in here, but uh, it's not like he was primed for theonomy and postmill or anything. Yeah. He was a dispy and a charismatic. I'm excited for you guys to hear his story, man. It's, it's It's awesome. And uh, theonomy, for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar, is uh, the belief that the, the the Old Testament law, particularly the Mosaic law, the Mosaic civil law, is valid and binding today, that we should be pursuing obedience to that civil law. And uh, there are lots of flavors of theonomists. So, you know, we're not saying in this podcast that you, you know, we're not giving a large defense of theonomy or saying you need to be a particular kind of theonomist. And in fact, we're going to talk about some some pitfalls in a future uh, episode that we would do well to avoid when it comes to even these beliefs that we're talking about today. We are uh, very excited for you to listen to this interview, to to learn more from Chalk. You'll hear that Ch- uh, Chocolate Knox has spent a lot of time at the feet of some great teachers. And actually along the way, you're going to learn why he is called Chocolate Knox. Is it because of his favorite candy? I can't. I think it's not at all. Uh, is it because he likes cho- like Willy Wonka? <laughs> Um, also, no. Okay. Maybe I'm confused. Anyway, let's cut to the interview. Well, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and we have the one, the only, David Shannon Chocolate Knox. Now, Chalk, first question, as I'm so glad you're here. Is Chalk Knox your DJ name? How did you get this name? Oh, wow. DJ name. No. Uh, if I If I had to DJ anything for you, it would be horrible. So I was going to Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in South Carolina. I was growing my beard out at the time, and it was much longer than it is now. And some brothers said, man, your beard is so long and so big, we got to give it its own name. So your beard actually got the name. That's how my, yeah, my beard got the name. And they got the name because I have a huge passion for um, the black church and black culture. 
and I want to see a revival, a reformation happen inside the black church. That's been my heart, my, my passion, my desire when I became reformed, because when I became reformed, it was like this whole new world of Christianity thought I knew I didn't know. And if I had these elements and these pieces, I could be living a more amazing Christian life. Right. It, the, it made sense of the Bible for me. And I was like, if we can, yep. if everybody in my circle, my charismatic black circle can have these things, that would be amazing. We'd take over the world. And so I had a huge passion for the black church. Everybody in seminary knew that. And I started, I didn't see anywhere inside of the reform world where your culture and your, and your nationality was something that you could be passionate about without losing Christianity, right? I didn't see that anywhere. Nobody was claiming that except for John Knox. And I remember reading John Knox and John Knox saying, give me Scotland or I die. He had a huge passion oh, for the Scottish people. And he held it together the same way that Paul held together his passion for his kinmen. And I was like, oh, you can have both of these things and not be a heretic. Okay. <laughs> like, I, All right. I love that. And so everybody knew that at seminary. And they're like, you know, let's call it his beard, the chocolate Calvin. I was like, yeah. No, <laughs> and then I can't remember who it was. Calvin. I think it was Piper who was like, hey, let's call it chocolate Knox. And I was like, yes. Yes, you know, I love Knox. Yes. You know my patch for the black church. It's like, it's called the Chocolate Knox. I'm like, yes, that's it. This is the Chocolate So my beard is actually named the Chocolate Knox, and that's how I get the name. This episode of the King's Hall podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Reformation Heritage Books. And this is a sponsor that we are very glad to partner with in this. Uh, and let me explain why we're so excited to partner with them. If you're going to see the new Christendom go up, you're going to need a lot of theologically robust resources that, that specifically come out of the great river of Reformed theology. And these guys have it. They've got great works that cover everything from really high theology to devotional literature, marriage and family, history and biography, and more. They, they have titles from Banner of Truth, PNR, all sorts of great resources. Uh, we believe that if you head to their website, heritagebooks.org, that you'll find something for just about everybody who's listening here, whether you're a theology nerd with a really well-stocked bookshelf, or you're a mom just looking for uh, something to read to the kids during breaks on homeschooling. There's something for everybody here. Uh, our family has benefited tremendously from several of their works, and we'll talk about those in future episodes as well. Um, but we'd encourage you to head to heritagebooks.org, uh, scroll around, find something for yourself today. We're glad to partner with these guys, and we would want you to actually help support the show by supporting them. They've been really generous in helping us. And so so support these guys, help them uh, continue to keep these resources in print and keep this great heritage available for future generations. Head to heritagebooks.org or see the link in the show notes and pick up a, a book for yourself or your family today. I think it's even more legendary because of the beard status, I think. Uh, and you know what? We need more knocks in our day. Let's let's face it. I was reading something the other Max. day, and uh, it was kind of shocking because he was uh, talking about Mary Queen of Scots, and he's like, "She's a whore. She's unfit to lead, and we're gonna pray her down." And I was like, "Wow, it's bold. It's very, very bold." You know, the the biggest thing from Knox that I took away with is how to pray. I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, so praying in the charismatic world was one thing. But I realized becoming yeah. reformed, praying was something else. It was, we talk about bringing lawsuit to help keep our government at bay. And I started realizing that mm. prayer was another form of bringing lawsuit and asking God to come and oh, vindicate. Man. And so, and I learned that from Knox, you know, when you have pagan leaders that are scared of a praying man, that's the kind of person that you want to be in society. 
where they know that you are going to go talk to the Lord and they are afraid of your heart's desire and prayer to God because they know mm. that he'll vindicate you. And I was like, I want some of that in my life. Like how do, how do <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want the governor of, of, of Idaho to be like, are those praying people over there? Watch out because their God I'm answers. Terrified. Them. I'm terrified. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's good to have, a, be a great writer and people terrified of your writing or your stance or the, your words. But mm. I think I want people to be even more terrified of the fact that we're a praying people and that God answers our prayers. Oh man, it's so huge. And it's something that I think ties into something I, we're going to talk about in today's show with post-mill theology, but it really gets down into the, the weeds on these issues of if you want to see Christ's kingdom and dominion on earth, it's something fundamental. And I've been coming face to face with this in the imprecatory Psalms Mm. Uh, the dominion tool here is prayer. This is something mm. that we're praying for. Mm. Um, one of the things I want to ask you, I'm guessing you weren't born with a golden spoon in your hand and you weren't born with post-mill theology. So how did you, I just talk about your eschatological journey, if you will. How did you come to this persuasion? Yeah. Growing up in a black charismatic church, my parents were both um, missionaries. So I spent a lot of time traveling and so we spent a lot of time going to places in Mexico that were slums, torn down back in the 80s, uh, early 80s, and bringing the gospel out there. We would bring food and we would preach. And my parents, being charismatic, would lay hands on people and uh, pray for their healing. And we would see some healings and other times we wouldn't. And, you know, so I I've grew up around that kind of culture and environment. I didn't know I, w- I didn't know much about eschatology uh, except for two things. I knew that as charismatics have this kind of weird disconnect where it's like, we know that the power of God moves here on earth and we know that we can reach out to it and use it. But then at the same time, we're waiting for God to come and rescue us out of this place. <laughs> so it's like this weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and That's so right. it's this weird thing of, uh, we know the kingdom is coming here on earth, but Lord, hurry up and get us out of here. Cause for these people, you know, <laughs> yeah. destroy everything. And, so growing up like that, when I became Reformed, I didn't bite into a, a post-mill eschatology immediately, even becoming Reformed. I kind of, I went more dispensational than even I was as a charismatic. And it wasn't mm. until uh, Meet Marcus Pittman, where two things mm. happened to me. I was working at Wretched TV with Todd Friel, producing a TV show over there. And Marcus, we hired Marcus to come in. And Marcus solidified two things that were kind of loose in my theology since the charismatic world, which was theonomy. And then he added a whole nother element, which was post-millennialism. Yeah. And so with theonomy, what he did was, so as a charismatic, you grow up with a very strong commitment to God's law, Old Testament. We are the head, Deuteronomy 28, we're the head, not to tell, high above, not belief, blessed when yep. we go in, blessed when we come out. So you, you hold to all those promises of the Old Testament and the law, but you don't know how to use it and apply it. So I hadn't no, nothing in reformedom did anything with that worldview except to try and unhitch it. You know, the dispensational side wanted to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament in some ways. When I met Marcus and he started bringing theonomy to me or solidifying theonomy for me, because I already was a theonomist, I just didn't know it. I started seeing how the, the, the theology of God's law started fitting inside of the new covenant and how the rest of the world, God gave his law so that we could actually start applying what it looks like practically to love God and to love our neighbor. So you don't have an 
You don't have a layout of what love looks like to God apart from his law. And you don't know then if you've offended or if you've loved your neighbor apart from God's law. So you don't steal, you don't kill, you don't commit adultery, right? Love isn't just some abstract word that's floating in the heavens that's based on all your feelings and emotion. It's actually real tangible things, right? <laughs> Love does mm. something. It seeks the good of your neighbor, right? And and so when he started f- filling out those positions of how God's law applied in, in the new covenant and in this world, I started seeing, wait a second, the Bible starts to apply very directly in a legal sense to everything that I'm doing, not just in a spiritual sense, but risen from the dead and said, all authority is given to him, go and make disciples and teach them everything I've commanded you. Well, then I have to teach people what it looks like to love their neighbors in a legal sense, what it looks like to Mm. honor God in a legal sense, not just a spiritual sense. And then what happens when someone doesn't love their neighbor in a legal sense? Because Jesus isn't just Lord of the spiritual world. He's actually king of the world and all the other kings are going to come and cast their crowns down before him. This is a reality right now. He's actually ruling and reigning. So then if that was, if if the enemy hits there, then post-millennialism is not a far stretch then at all. Like it's, it's, it's just the it's just the fallout of what happens as people continue to live faithfully and as the gospel is proclaimed faithfully postmillennialism is a natural outworking and so it that's kind of how i came to postmillennialism was through kind of marcus settling for me a theonomic perspective and then naturally that only has a trajectory and so it's like well that just not, that just makes sense there's there's no other I wasn't studying eschatology. I was studying the fallout of the gospel, <laughs> right? And that's what I was like. If the gospel does what it says it's supposed to do, then it actually is connecting again the mandate that God gave Adam in the beginning, right? So you got Paul talking about the second Adam. Well, you have to understand a whole lot about the first Adam and what his responsibilities were and what the goals of the first Adam was to do. He was supposed to be a reflection of heaven on earth. He was supposed to go and take dominion over the earth. He was supposed to go and cultivate the earth and do everything in the earth that God had did in the garden. So he was supposed to make the rest of the earth look like the garden, right? That's what Adam was supposed to do. Well, what happened? Well, he sinned. He fractured that ability to perfectly replicate what was in the garden in the rest of the world. And so God comes in and says, I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to give you a promise. This We're going to fix this problem. And that whole narrative of Genesis is still going to take place. And so I, I hadn't really thought about the idea of eschatology so much as I thought about the idea of if God told us to go and make disciples and he said, teach them everything that I command you, then Mm. if we worked that all the way out and we were consistent in proclaiming that message, then that has an outcome to the gospel that I wasn't actually thinking about, right? I was thinking we're going to get out of here. We're going to get raptured out of here. We're going to get gone. But what happens though, if the gospel actually does what it's supposed to do, changes people's Mm. hearts, and then God's law shows them what love looks like to the point that they say, oh, this is what it looks like to love my neighbor. This is what it looks like to love God. And this is what it looks like. So when we don't love properly, the civil law, when we don't love properly legally, what does the civil magistrate then have to do with that? And then what does the church have to do with that? And then how does the family engage with that? Well, all that comes from theonomy. All of a sudden I had a culture of Christian growth and success built around God's law. Well, mm. man, that's not a hard jump then to post-millennialism, right? That's not, it's like, well, it must be the case because 
if God's law, if the gospel does what it's supposed to do, Jesus is actually reigning and ruling right now from heaven, and we apply God's law to every situation, then that's going to have an outcome the same way that the gospel has an outcome, unless people aren't connected to the world that we're currently living in. Unless people are somehow disconnected from the world, then the gospel works to change people's hearts to want to obey God's law in culture and society, in their legal systems. The trajectory was a no-brainer. Yeah, it makes total sense. I hadn't quite made that connection in the same way between theonomy and post-mill. Obviously, you find a lot of guys in the camp that are you know, adhering to both things, but you're absolutely right. If you're going to take dominion, you have to do it according to something. And so we're saying according to the law of God. I'm wondering, Chuck, were there, if you remember back in that time period, um, you're going through post-mill theonomy. Do you remember any specific objections that you had? <laughs> Oh, man, bro. I was loaded with objections. Matter of fact, there's a book that has all of the objections that, well, it wasn't just that I was loaded with objections. You got to remember, I was working at Wretched TV at the time. I was working with Todd Frio, um, huge MacArthurite and also a dispensationalist himself. And so as I'm working through this process, I'm actually having opposition. Me and Todd used to talk for hours against theonomy. He would be so opposed to it. He was against post-millennialism. I'm fighting for it because I said, this makes sense with everything that I know. And so all the questions came up. One of them was like, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. That was one of the big ones. Uh, Another big one was, what do we do if there's no rapture? Like those two things were probably the biggest the biggest problems, because when you start saying Jesus kingdom isn't of this world, then you start leaving the recreation of the world outside of the gospel, right? Like you, which means, which means this is what's really crazy. You start removing the gospel away from the creation itself Hmm. from Genesis. And so I, I didn't think about it then, but I was like, Hey, that's a good point. Jesus did say his kingdom wasn't of this world. And that's where I got to give uncle Gary DeMar so much respect and so much love Because I hadn't read any of his books. I had went to his office and met him. And I sat down with lunch for him and just started banging out these questions. And he's like, you you have a misreading of the text. And so you're reading into the text. You're eisegeting the text. Yeah, his kingdom isn't of this world. His kingdom doesn't operate the way that this world operates. His kingdom doesn't draw its power from this world. His kingdom is over this world. And that's why he's saying, if my kingdom were of this world, I'd be acting like you and my people would fight the same way that you guys would fight. And I was like, Oh, Oh, I, as a person who has worked so hard to, to get a grammatical historical exegesis of the text, I am eisegeting the text because of the way that somebody else told me to read it. Yeah. And I was like, it it opened up everything for me. I love it. And and what you mentioned with Gary DeMar, man, I can't think like, so I've gone through the cycle too, right? Where you're having all these objections and he was kind of the go-to, like I just Google American vision, Gary DeMar, whatever passage you have an objection on, I would read it. And the thing is, I wasn't, I was not at all coming from like a fanboy perspective. I was coming from the perspective of, I genuinely just want to understand what the text says. And like, you know, second Peter three, I'm like, well, wait a minute. What is he talking about? And then I go and read Gary DeMar and I'm like, I actually buy that argument. I think, I actually think that he's right. He makes a really good, a really good case. So I'm curious how you originally met Gary and then just talk about that relationship. Now he's uncle Gary to you. 
Yeah. But just talk about that relationship and like how that impacted you as well. Man, that's funny. So, you know, with uh, Wretched, I was working with Kirk Cameron, doing some things with them because they were, they actually started Way of the Master and then they started Way of the Master Radio, which is where they brought Todd yeah. in and then Way of the Master TV. Well, through that relation with Kirk, Kirk did an interview with a guy by the name of Darren Doan. Darren Doan is a filmmaker who um, was doing punk rock music video. He's like the punk rock music video guide, right? Like if anybody remembers punk rock and saw anything punk rock, they saw a Darren Doan video probably multiple times. He's got like 525 videos he's done, uh, music videos. And, and he was making movies with Kirk. And he did this interview with Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron looked cool, not just famous and well-known from Growing Pains, but <laughs> Kirk looked like a dude. He looked like a G and I was like, what did this guy do? Cause I know Kirk, right? I knew Kirk before. So I'm watching this interview and I'm like, this filmmaker is breaking all the rules. He's fantastic. And he doesn't seem built like the typical form of Christian men. He doesn't seem soft. He seems a little rough around the edges. He like, he might punch you while he's trying to get you saved or drown you while he's trying to baptize you. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's right. And so, and so I, hit up Darren and, and went to his film school and say, Hey, I want to go to your film school. He said, uh, come out for 12 days and meet me. And, I, and so we connected. And when he realized I was in Georgia, he said, bro, you got the baddest theologian in the Southeast in your state. You guys need to connect. And I'm like, who? <laughs> like, I had no idea. Hadn't heard of American vision. Really? Um, I heard of vision forum, but I hadn't heard of American vision. Hadn't heard of Gary DeMar. He really hadn't, you know, that that was an era that I wasn't in probably in the late eighties. And so I went to their studio with Marcus Pittman because Darren was like, Hey, you need to go connect with him and say that you'll do videos for those guys and get them updated with some of their videos. And so we went to go meet studio in Dallas, Georgia. Was it? I re- I remember uncle Gary checking out. He was, he was already done. He was, uh, had, you know, he had paid his dues and he had written his books and he had had his fights I'm just now coming to the game as a young cat with with the talent. I'm like, hey, man, you you have to you can't leave, man. Like we need you out here. <laughs> These streets is rough, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> um, it was just new for me. And, and it hadn't hit. I think that now it's gone commercial in the sense, but it hadn't hit yeah. that commercial. It was American Vision and postmillennialism was really an underground game that the dispensationalists never really wanted to have a debate on after the 90s, right? They were done. It was over. And so I was coming in saying, man, you guys got to make videos. And Uncle Gary's like, nah. I said something about dispensationalism as we were leaving. And he was like, let's go to lunch. And we go to lunch <laughs> and for an hour and a half, this dude just lights up every worldview that I was holding into dispensationalism. And he did it angry and loving. And that's how he got the name Uncle Gary. Because he was like <laughs> your uncle that was like, boy, what's wrong with you? Sitting up here doing this stuff and smack you in the back of the head and pull you in. You, you, you ain't going to be representing me like this. You know I love you behind. Get over here and do this. It, it was just like, and he was... And, and he had kind of like that older uncle kind of feel where it's like, I love <laughs> yeah. you. I'm not going to let you out here looking crazy. And so about six months after I met Uncle Gary, I went to go work for him uh, to make How to Answer the Fool, the first documentary I made yeah. for American Vision. But that's how he was how he got to know uh, Gary. And, and that's how he got the name Uncle, because you talk about dispensationalism, you can get him angry. <laughs> and he gets angry <laughs> and it would, he would go off, man. And. And so that's how, I, and so the the big, most biggest one for me was Jesus' kingdom not being of this world was one. The other one was 
what do you do if there's no rapture? So let's say that the rapture, if we are kind of gathering our things and getting things together and trying to hold things down until the rapture, buckle down until the rapture gets here. If there's no rapture, I got a whole bunch of stuff and my whole mindset and my whole world is, is wrong. Yeah. And I don't know what to do with it anymore. That was, that was the worst one because I, I was waiting for the rapture. I was waiting for things to get worse. And so there was, and our doctrine was telling us, Hey, don't even worry about college. Don't worry about even marriage. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. There was a lot of that in our, in our circles. And so building and planting trees and thinking about the future, the future, you could be out of here. There's no point in thinking about the future. And when uncle Gary showed me and started talking to me, what needed to be done? He's like, you go to work. He's like, that's what you do. You go to work. And it did, it took years for that to make sense to me, you know? So yeah, man, I, I can't, uncle, I can't recommend myth lies and half truths by uncle Gary enough. Like that book was it. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you too. So it's like, there's a lot of people. So you, you, you get introduced to Uncle Gary. Obviously, now you're at Christ Church. You got a lot of post-mill thought going on around you. If you were going <laughs> to point somebody to like, you know, a few works, a few people, I, I think Uncle Gary is definitely one of them. I know Doug's written some stuff. You and I have talked about David Chilton. Uh, I'm just curious, kind of like where, I'm, I mean, for me, honestly, like uh, David Chilton, Paradise Restored, that's probably... I've heard, I haven't read Days of Vengeance, but everybody said they're like, this is it, bro. Opus Magnum. Yeah, it's it's the bomb. There's nobody, um, I, I know why it went out of print, because if I was a dispensationalist, I'd do everything I can to make sure nobody has that book. <laughs> I'm, I mean- It got raptured. No, <laughs> I, I, that book, and I, here's the thing, I'm just now reading that book. Yeah. Like, I'm just, I, and it's so, it's probably the best exegesis on the topic I think you can have as far as exposition of the book of Revelation. It's it's phenomenal. Of course, like you said, Uncle Gary, but I think Doug Wilson's book on a primer on worship, for whatever reason, man, all the stuff that the places where I'm at now, I never read the main books to get there. I had to read other books because for me, it wasn't about one topic. I had to have all of my Christianity reshift, right? Yeah. I had to have everything reshift. And when everything reshifted, theonomy made sense. Then postmillennialism made sense. Then you know, fatherhood and all that stuff made sense. I had to have a radical evangelical Christian shake in my theology. And um, I think a primer on worship was one of the books that did it for me. The other thing, other, and the reason that that book did it was because Doug does something that most theonomists don't do well. Most theonomists live in a legal, very legal world, but then they don't show you how the law applies in reality or in the daily world, right? So they tell you how it applies legally, but then there's a a law that kind of works daily out, you know, and Doug takes the the economic principles and shows you how they daily operate and work out. And so a primer on worship started showing for me how important culture was and relationships were from, you know, the Christian church and the foundation of that, and then how that operated out on a daily basis. And if I didn't have that culture that I wanted, how to create it where I was at. And that was, that did something that it put the responsibility on me that if I saw it to man up, grab your family, have family worship, invite people over for Sabbath dinner, sit down Mm. and sing and fellowship because that's where the power was. Right. It, It showed me where, where faithfulness was, where the power was. So a primer on worship was phenomenal for me because I was in Georgia at a Presbyterian church. I was doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to do as a, 
a good reformed person. I became Presbyterian. I baptized my kids, you know, holding the biblical law. I did all the stuff, but it, I, but I, I was doing it and didn't know that there was a foundation to even that. Right. And what does that look like? And it just gave all those things legs. It's, it's such a huge thing. And this is one of the questions that I've had. I was thinking through this issue as well um, as it played out in my life, but it, it, it's not as much just a theological argument. I think that's something that's missed. And yeah. if you look even at like the early reconstructionists, there was a lot of infighting. Um, I wasn't around for a lot of it, but you talk to a lot of the pastors who were there and they're like, yeah, those guys were kind of notoriously hard to get along with. Yeah. Did a lot of great work, groundbreakers. Um, but they, sometimes when you're the frontiersman, you're the guy pushing the edge. You're maybe not the guy who is going to bring everybody you know, together in the long run to get to get stuff done. So one of the questions that I've often asked is like uh, about Moscow is a good example. You've been there. It's this question of how you see it actually changing people's lives. Uh, so I want to ask you that mm. question before I do. I think to something you said earlier, dispensationalism, the problem is, at least for me, I had absorbed it, osmosis of an environment, even though I didn't, I could not explain. Yep. I didn't even know what it was theologically. So now we're talking in the reverse. And that's what I want to ask you. How is post-mill about culture, not just about egg-headed theology? So I'll tell you about an event. There's a story. Me and Marcus are theonomists. We're working with Darren Doan on a film shoot with Kirk at Liberty University. And we're just in the elevator going up to, you know, this. So this happens all in the elevator conversation. Me and Marcus are just theonomists. just like, ah, the biblical law, this, biblical law, this, and this is theonomy, this, and this is theonomy, that. And Darren's over there in the corner listening. And we're three floors away from getting off. He's like, and he's like, all you post-mill theonomists, all you ever do is talk and none of you guys work or do anything. Uh-huh. And he got off the elevator. Me and Marcus stayed there with the doors closing because he was right. He was right. We just had a bunch of great ideas, but we had no work. We hadn't built anything. And that at that moment, it hit me. And it's like, I don't have the thing that I say that I think that I have. One of the things that... Being out here in Moscow has showed me is what it looks like for your worldview to commit to the planet that God has placed you in. And I, I and, and not just in building institutions, but building your family. Like, what is what does it look like for a husband to love his family? What does it look like for a husband to love his wife? Do you expect to have a fruit that you didn't plant? Right. <laughs> like, you know, all those things, it's, it really hit the ground where I started seeing men love their children in a way where I hadn't seen before, where um, I'll use Gabe. You know, um, I don't compliment Gabe enough, but I'm going to give him a serious compliment. When I got here, I watched Gabe take joy in being a father and being a, a husband in a way that I can't verbalize well. It was rooted in the the foundations of how he acted with his kids and how he disciplined his kids and how he, you know, it wasn't odd for him to say, hey, I'll be right back. Grab his kid, go to the bathroom, correct him and come back like nothing had ever happened and just keep going through the motions. And most of the times you would see it's such a big disruption. Oh, I'm sorry, everybody. Please forgive me. I just have to. And then they make this announcement that they got to go discipline their kid. And then they and so they and then it just interrupts everything. It was this is the flow of everything. It wasn't odd, you know, and then the same way in in encouraging brothers to engage with their families. You know, you don't just come and step yourself in somebody's family in the South. You know, hold on, man. This is my room right here. 
Yeah. You stay out there with that. You can offer maybe a slight suggestion over a, a little note and say, hey, I was just watching it. It's, it's, it's not the same way. It was like, hey, man, I look, I ain't trying to be the god of your business, but I am seeing that I saw a little thing with you and your son. I'm just saying that's not healthy. If you want to go have this trajectory, that's not a healthy way to go. You know, and the, and the way that they correct is a coming alongside and support, you know, and it was just it gave a tangible reality, what it looks like of the kingdom of God here on earth, working its way through mm. the, 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 the loaf. It was the first time that I had seen my theology and my worldview touch down on earth. Even my theonomy, what does it look like? You know, and it, it made me feel like I didn't have to have it immediately. Right. So when you, when you, part of what happens in reform folks, we go through this cage stage. Once we learn something new that we like right now, immediate, like we got to have it right yeah. now. And that's right. And, and I, I saw that there's a certain comfort in learning that it, it was faithfulness and faith. Uh, it, it, that's the main thing, man. If I can say, if I had to drill it down on one thing, it was faithfulness and faith, believing that the gospel works and that over time, the gospel is going to work through a human being in such a way that he is perfected into the image of Christ. It, hmm. you, you learn to believe that and not just, you don't lose faith. You say, okay, well, the gospel's real. So it's just going to take some time and I'm going to come by my brother and be like, Hey man, try this out. I call it the keeping up with the Joneses of sanctification, right? <laughs> but it really was a understand a relearning that faith is not just something that I assent to in my head, but it is a believing God about his promises here on earth. I really start believing that Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And because I believe that I act a certain way. Mm. Right. Because I believe that reality, the things that I do every day, I know that my kids are going to be sanctified and grow up to love Jesus and work and live in this world the way that Adam was supposed to because of the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. I, I have faith in that. And so I do the things every day that lead to that outcome. And so I haven't it, it's been a very unique experience, very unique experience. Um, mm. I think I answered you. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, you did. Absolutely. That, and it is so big. I think that uh, one of the things that we tend to do with, with our cage stage syndrome uh, in reformed camps is we fail to recognize, and this, this gets back to sphere sovereignty, which I want to ask you about, but it really gets back to, okay, if I have to take dominion, where do I start? Well, what spheres do you have authority <laughs> in? Right? Number one, yourself. There can be no, we have a, in the King's Hall, we talk about uh, he who conquers must conquer himself. So this, Amen. this idea that if you want to take dominion of the earth, you can't control yourself, you know, your body, your thoughts, your deeds, your work, your home. I mean, you're hopeless to go actually take dominion. So That's right. I, I want you to talk to me just a little bit about, okay, what is sphere sovereignty? I'm thinking of like a, even a Gary DeMar book that's really good on this is God and government. Yeah. It's got some yeah. stuff on there about sphere sovereignty. How do you, how do you interact? But, but why is that important as we're talking about post-mill dominion? Yeah. So uh, let me go back a little bit. And as you're talking about books that influenced me, as soon as I became a theonomist uh, officially, I'd already had a good Old Testament theology. I hadn't figured out how to place all the things. And so case laws and biblical laws, how they worked out. I read so much Rush Dooney 
the Tools Institute, the biblical uh, Institutes of Biblical Law yeah. from Rush Unity was phenomenal for me. And then, and somebody who worked out a lot of Rush Dooney's positions and angles was Gary North, who just recently died. Gary North yeah. was extremely important in my development. Tools of Dominion, that book, oh my goodness. His, his, he's got a, he understood how to cross those bridges and he was just phenomenal for me. Um, and so I learned sphere sovereignty from those guys, Rush Dooney, Gary North, and Gary DeMar. He learned, he helped me figure out how to verbalize it a lot, but he's working out sphere sovereignty and everything he does. And basically what it is, is, is it, it's an observation of how God runs, has designed the world to operate, right? That's what sphere sovereignty is. God has uh, designed the world with these four governments in place. And those four governments, the family government, the state, civil magistrate, the church, and then the one before all of those is self-government. And mm. self-government is extremely important because self-government and the family are where morals are taught and expounded upon and uh, culture is developed, right? And so the church or the, the, the state don't develop culture, <laughs> That's just (laughs) culture comes from the family because they're the only people who make people right. Culture isn't people have a misconception of culture. Culture is people, people and how they live with each other and what are their loves and desires. Right. That is what culture is. And so in order to be able to make culture, the first thing you have to be able to do is to make people. The church doesn't make people. The civil magistrate doesn't make people. The home makes people. Individuals make people. And so uh, the moral understanding of how we interact with each other comes from particular two governments first, right? That's the first place. And what the church does, the church is a priest in one sense that, that reminds people, this is what God's expecting of you. (laughs) Here is his standards. Here is his law. Fathers, mothers, civil magistrate, go then into your governments that you have and operate with this standard in place. So then the family takes the word of God, which is the umbrella of all of this, and we start exercising the morality, the doctrine, the teachings that God has for us and how our kids operate with each other in our home first and with their parents, understanding first the parental authority. Your parents have an office. You respect that office. So the home becomes a government that shows how all the other governments operate and function. So you are practicing and training in the home and building the culture that's going to be outside of the home. So self-government is super important because you're going to have to be able to be a person that embodies all of the realities of those moralities and those teachings and disciplines and then model for someone else what it looks like to be successful in those and here's the crazy part, what it looks like to fail in those. We always talk about what it looks like to be successful as a man and a father. What we don't talk about is what it looks like to repent as a man and as a father. And that's because we keep acting like this is a, we'll, we'll be absolutely perfect. It's like, no, 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 we'll be absolutely righteous because we repented and trust in the one who is perfect. And that's where, that's where the standard is, son. It's not in, in, in daddy. I have an office that I'm mirroring try to do properly and right. And you, son, I want you to understand that there's an authority above me that I'm submitting to. Self-government, church government, family government, civil government. The civil government really just has, and Eric, I don't know how much your people already know about this because I know you're already in tune to all this. You just tell me when you want me to stop. 
No, yeah, keep preaching, brother. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll go to. Um, we kind of got self government and family government. I want the church government. Uh, this, this, what's important about the church government that people forget about is that being the priest, being the prophet, they are. They help keep these spheres in one way or another operating. And understanding where their limits are. So we don't even understand sphere sovereignty apart from the word of God and the the educator. So the church is a teacher. It is teaching all these other government governments what God has required for you and what it looks like to be successful in these governments so that God honors and blesses you. And then if you don't keep this law, he will curse you. So they're kind of like the prophets and the priests that keep those things in line. And they're responsible for the unity of of the body as well. Right. So they they show what purification looks like yep. when people submit to the word of God. Culture is like, well, this is what discipline looks like. And this is what loving discipline looks like. And this is the hope that a government has is that you will repent, come to a rest- restored place. And so they have the word of sacrament. They have those two things people take for granted so much. The table, I believe, <laughs> try not to get to in the skinny branches. I believe the lack of our understanding of the table is why we have disunity amongst races and culture and society right now. Mm, and I, mm. what I mean by that is we miss, un, we've made the table something that it's not so much so that doing it wrong in this government has bled off into separations outside of that government in the civil matrix that we shouldn't have because we don't know how to fellowship around the table. The table is not designed to keep people who believe in Jesus out of it. The table is designed so that people who believe in Jesus can come and feast together Mm. Now that sounds like everybody says, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. But then when it comes to Baptist Presbyterian divides, what do we do? We make the table a place to separate and we haven't shown the world or disciple the world. No, no, no. We have differences. We view something. We have convictions that, but we view them differently. But because we are Christians, we can come around at the table. We can come mm. around to the table. And because we don't model the table properly, we have a fraction in the culture and society at large. We haven't figured out how to be unified between Presbyterians and Baptists and church membership. How do we expect mm. to model to the world how to be brothers and sisters in relationship as humanity? That's oh, ridiculous. And so because man. we don't understand that, we are perpetuating the very culture that we want to fix. Right. We're perpetuating a culture that's divided. And so I think once we understand the table and the word and we can get this unification of brothers and sisters across theological tribes, be unified at the table and understand what that means. That's one of the reasons that I absolutely love the CREC, bro. I don't know of another denomination that allows both Presbyterians and Baptists who have very strong convictions to come together in unity in a denomination, let alone at the Lord's table. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. You you really wouldn't. And it gets to this point, Chuck, where, you know, reading Chilton, you you read a lot of the biblical theology and a lot of guys have said this too. It's not just him, but I I think this garden imagery, the temple, um, temple garden imagery, the the rivers flowing out, it's the rivers flowing out that transform the world. Facts. But what, what we have to get right here is that worship is central to all of this. So one yeah. of the, the things that gets, you know, charged against post mill all the time is like, oh, so tomorrow you want to round up the homos in the street and stone them. And tomorrow you want to use, basically you just want to use the government to weaponize your faith and go hold everybody at force to do what you say. And, it, and it's not at all. It's we're starting with worship. We want people to be transformed by the gospel, by regeneration. The Holy Spirit is working in and through that to create new people, new hearts, new minds. 
yeah, just I guess if you would just unpack more for me, and you really are, but it's like, why is mm. worship so central? And why is it not, let's just go hijack the government tomorrow and then and then we'll hold people at force? You know, part I want to say this first. People don't understand the the government has already been hijacked. What, what do <laughs> yeah. you think the resurrection did? What, what 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 do they understand the resurrection to be? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The government has already been hijacked. It's dead and it's falling, and people mm. don't even understand that. And so, the, so that's first. The other thing is, and people always want to put that the anonymists that and and post millennials say, hey, you guys are just grasping for power to try and force people to do stuff. It's going to happen eventually anyway. I don't care whose eschatology you you choose. The knee is going to get bent. <laughs> like that's a, that's an escapable concept. So I don't like the argument. Like whether it happens in time and space over a period of time or completely at one moment, everybody has eschatology that the knees of pagans are going to get bent. <laughs> like what, yeah. that's not a that's not like a new idea and concept. We all are expecting it at some point, right? That's part of what the joy is: is that every king is going to have to bow to Jesus Christ. Yeah. You just have it. You just have delayed the process because you don't believe what Jesus did was powerful in the resurrection. I believe that the resurrection actually accomplished something in real time and space. The difference is, is that I think people look at post-millennialists like abolitionists and they, they, they read us the wrong way. We understand that when the, when they said uh, to Jesus, Lord, what is the kingdom like? It's just like a, it's like leaven in a loaf of bread. Slowly and over time, the whole, and so when people are saying, they was like, no, 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 we, we are not expecting for some flip switch to flip and overnight we're killing homosexuals. <laughs> we're expecting the demise of homosexuality because we know how Jesus makes enemies, his friends, he dies for them. Damn. And so we, we go and proclaim, this is what I mean by faith and faithfulness. We go and proclaim the gospel that there is a new king in town. Your contract of this world is now done and over with. Jesus has risen, risen from the dead. It is his world. And now he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe that and then come to a better kingdom. So we actually believe right now that the kingdom that we're living in, the world that we're living in, is a real kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that has a trajectory of success coming to it as the message is spread. So let me use this example. Let's say that we went and there's a war right now in Ukraine. Let's say that Putin takes the capital of Ukraine right now. Cause you got all Ukraine fighting. Everybody's fighting. There's soldiers everywhere in Ukraine fighting and he takes the capital of Ukraine and he claims Ukraine as his own now and is officially Russia too. There might be pockets in Ukraine that have not submitted to that or choose still to overthrow that. But the reality of what they're trying to overthrow, they, they can't. It's done. Yeah. It's solidified. That has happened. People need to see that as Christ has come and conquered the world, the one that we're living in, he lived in it, he died in it, and he rose from the dead in this world and has now claimed the power of this world. And 1 Corinthians 10 or 15 is the enemies of Jesus are now being put underneath his feet. And so we actually believe that's what God is currently doing. And one of the ways that we believe that is saying, you know what, how we operate and love each other in this new world that Jesus has died for. And since this is his world is that we follow his law. And so killing babies is wrong. If you are a pro-life person, you are a theonomist. 
If you're a pro-life person, you are post-millennial. You, you, that's the, you, you don't have any other options. Why is it wrong to kill another human being? Why is slavery wrong? Well, because Jesus rose from the dead and he says in his world, that is not okay. You can't do that in the new kingdom. This, we always talk about the kingdom coming to earth, but this is a new kingdom. We are literally living in the kingdom. And this is what Jesus has commanded all men everywhere to do is repent. You can't make that command unless you are king of the world, right? And so oh, man. What, what we're operating and doing every day is submitting to that king. If there's another king that might be a holdout in one of these fractions of the world, we're saying, hey, do you know that Jesus took over the world? Do you know this is his world now and that he is calling you to submit to him, which is why slavery is wrong, sir, which is why adultery is wrong, sir, which is why homosexuality is wrong, sir. And, and we, we believe that the gospel is going to work its way out. So we don't have a problem taking time over generations to live faithfully so that the gospel mm. works its way through the loaf so that every nation gets the message that there's a new ruler in town. So, yeah, will homosexuality be illegal? Absolutely. It will be because Jesus is king and his message is powerful. It changes the hearts and minds of people. Will, will people get killed for having abortions at, at one point? In, yes, absolutely, because the gospel is real. And, and God has no problem. I mean, think about this for a second. I know I'm, I'm talking a lot, but think about this for a second. How long was it before Jesus came to the earth and died? 4,000 years, something like that? Yeah. 4,500 years, something like that? He has no problem with a 4,500 year plan. Okay. Thousand generations. No That's a long game. <laughs> That's right. He has no problem. And, and we need to, in our microwave generation, be like, you know what? God has no problem. How long does it take for apple tree to get fruit? Might take some mm. time, right? If, you know, we've so disconnected from the world that we forget that God doesn't have a problem using time to bring forth his, his glory, his blessing, his reality. And so when the Bible says, when the time had come, Jesus enters the scene, right? And when the time has come, all the world will be filled with the glory of the Lord, like the, like the oceans, right? And so the covered sea. So we got nothing but time. So I don't have, this is why I can be gracious to my Baptist brothers who don't baptize their kids. They got nothing but time to become Presbyterians. Right? <laughs> well, it's, it's actually interesting too, because when you look at the time element, you know, in dispensationalism, it's the exact opposite. They're saying we right. don't have time. And so oh, any efforts you would make end up being like sort of like either drastic or I think that's why they sometimes envision that what we're talking about is, well, since we only have five years left, how are you going to get it all done in five years? And our, our simple answer is we're not. We have a thousand generations or, you know, uh, uh, whatever's left of that thousand generations to get it done. The, the other thing I want to ask you about, OK, is we've been talking a lot about cultural engagement you're involved with cross politic. You've been doing stuff with right. Jason Whitlock. And um, one of the things that I got to thinking about is, is we've talked about it in the past in reform camps and post mill is no different. We can sort of be in our, our little ghetto where we use our language and we talk our language to each other. And it's kind yeah. of becomes to the rest of the world. It becomes Christianese nonsense. I'm yeah. convinced we need to really be thinking about how do we communicate, you know, ethos, pathos, logos. How do we communicate fully post-mill theology to, to the culture that we're in? Man, that's a big question. Here's, here's, here's my, here's been my, we have to not be afraid of sin. We have to believe that being around sinners doesn't make us sinful, hmm. but that our Christianity rubs off on them. 
and part of that is understanding humanity. I, there's there's two things there. So I've become more Christian humanist probably in the last six months than I probably ever have before because I've learned to enjoy the beauty of a human that God has made, even mm. those that are not Christians. That has become so amazing for me. So now I look at guys like Elon Musk, or I look at the people who made Twitter and Facebook, and I look at all these people, and I'm like, wow, God, I want, I want to revel in his creation that he's given men these kind of minds to make and to gather people and to create tools for us to communicate. Because I'm post-millennial, I see like all this is going to be great for the kingdom, but I'm also seeing the beauty that God has put inside of man. Eternity is put inside of man to, to fall in love with humanity again. Hmm. And spend time around humans that aren't um, like me, right? So part of it is for us to get out of our Christian ghettos physically, not just thinking differently and to say, what's the language they use? And then think like them. And how do I translate my Christianese into the secularese? You know, like, that's, not, that's, not, that's not really the key. You really have to, if you're going to garden, you have to go put your hands in the dirt, hmm. period. Man. If you want to communicate to people, you're going to have to be around people, be with people. This is what we miss when Jesus is sitting there with the adulterers and the fornicators and with the, 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 the unrighteous. He's in there with them. And we tend to think, oh, my goodness, if we touch a leper, we're going to get leprosy. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but we forget like the gospel is the contagion one, right? That's the thing. Right. And if you are believing the faith, if you're faithful and believing that they should be running from you. Oh man. Right? Like, Hey, Hey, Hey guys, what y'all doing over there? I used to watch my mom and she, she's not post little. She's just a Christian who believes the gospel. She used to go over to the drug deal in the corner and say, and talk to him say, Hey baby, what you doing? What you doing out here? Just sitting there having a normal conversation. Well, I got to make money. I got to do this. It's like, really, do you? You know, there's more than one way to make money. Is this worth your soul? Oh man, well, I don't know if I have a. You know, and just sit and and just the real, and I I I that I embrace that because that's my parents. We're missionaries. The real world engagement, looking to be somewhere in. This is why I think if I am politics and Christians, we need to be in it a lot more. That's an easy way in our local communities where we meet people who are not Christians who are looking to advance a form of human flourishing. Right. And yeah. it's like, okay, here's our connection. We're both humans and we both want human flourishing. Oh man. I know the best way we can have human flourishing and willing to go to the table and conversation and drink beer and have coffee and have people over to see what human flourishing looks like in our homes so they can see what human flourishing looks like in the culture. That's what Titus talks about. The, the way that we win the world is through our wives beautifying the homes, educating our children to love Jesus, and that shining so far in the world that it shuts their mouths about the testimony of Christianity. Mm. And, and so our homes need to be an open place for people to come. We need to be involved in society where we are currently not, where Christianity currently isn't. And we just need to fall in love with humanity in the same way that Jesus fell in love with humanity, that he was willing to die for it. That needs to be our desire first. So we go hang out with where the sinners are. We go hang out with the pagans. We're not afraid of the sin because we know someone who eats and kills sin and has mm. died for sin. And we don't believe that. We think, oh, if we're around them, 
And so that's the first thing I think, man, like Eric, that's the, if we can get Christians to not be afraid of the sin oh, and yeah. then, and then just be like, yeah, you know what? I, I know people who had all kinds of problems, but I know a gospel that transforms human people to act differently. And I, I guess what I was thinking about was the scandal of the gospel too. We got to embrace that. Yeah. We got, we got a, the world has a, a thing right now where they don't believe in forgiveness and forgiveness is a scandal to the world right now. And I, and it's finally made complete sense for me why Paul had to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it's the power of God into salvation right now. That should ring hard in our, our domes because the way the world looks at forgiveness and repentance is a scandal. Mm. How dare you say that your slave owner and you could live in fellowship and be forgiven. How dare you? How dare yeah. you? That's a scandal. No, that's exactly you know? right. It, um, as you're talking about the scandal too. Yeah. It, it really made me think of, you know, just the way that we interact with people um, and with ideas and you got into the culture spaces. And one of the things that I don't know if it's just instinct or actually trained to do I don't, I don't want to blame it all on my Baptist background, but it was consistent with my Baptist background where it was like, that's the dirty and the unclean. We just kind of stay over here in our, you know, Wednesday yeah. night Bible studies and, and, you know, that stuff can be helpful and good. But one of the things that I've started to realize, well, well, two things. Number one is a lot of the ground that we've seeded, like, you know, going to community town hall meetings, going to political meetings, asking to speak about sphere sovereignty. It's amazing how many times, honestly, they'll be like, yeah, come speak. Right. And you're like, wait, what? Right. We seeded this ground for no reason. So that's number <laughs> that's number one. But then it gets to my second question, which is, what does post-mill theology have to say to things like wokeness and CRT? You're starting to talk about this mm. with, you know, breeding, I think wokeness and CRT, it's breeding division. I was talking to a black pastor in Alabama two days ago. He said, CRT has mainly been aimed at white people to dupe them to, to buy into this lie of division. And, and he said, he said, we just don't have enough people who can speak out about it. And I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but he said, you know, part of the issue is if you're white, you're like not allowed to speak out against it. And so it's going to take black pastors and some black men to stand up and say, because to some extent they're allowed to speak in their communities, whatever. But again, back to this question, how does post-mill dominionist theonomy, how does it deal with CRT? Yeah, it goes over its head. It doesn't acknowledge it. So part of part of what critical race theory and, and intersectionality and wokeness believes is that it's impossible for sins to be forgiven. That's 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 at the very heart of it. That's what it says. And so you have to go get restitution some other way forever. There has to be a scapegoat. Right. And so it doesn't see a community where the gospel actually restores relationships between people. It doesn't see a community where, let's say, there really was some re- real sin, some real problems that doesn't see a community where Paul tells a slave to go back to his master and then tells mm. the master, remember you have a master that you need. It doesn't have a world where the, um, where those kind of relationships can be worked out. And, and here's, and here's a, and here's a, and so this goes back to what I was saying earlier. The reason that CRT, the reason that wokeness has that world is because the Christian church has proclaimed that world. Mm. It hasn't proclaimed. Look, what does the Bible say? It says, how can they believe on whom they haven't heard? How can they hear except they have a preacher? And how can a, they have a preacher except he be sent? What is he sent with? The message of reconciliation. 
That is not the proclaimed message right now. The preachers have abandoned the message because of the scandal of the gospel. The churches, post-millennialism, in one sense, it's not even just post-millennialism. Post-millennialism just believes in the gospel at the end of the day. But it's believes in the gospel all the way through, all the way up, and all the way down. And it's believing the restoration of the gospel has taken place. The restoration of man to God has taken place in the person of Jesus. That is not inside of woke theology. That is not inside of intersectionality and CRT. And so what it does is that as you believe that reality, the way that you engage with other people is completely different. And because of, I want to make sure that when I'm talking about post-millennialism, when I'm talking about the gospel, I am talking about theonomy underneath all of this too. I'm talking about God's legal standard, God's law, and how we engage with each other. So then now we have a standard on what is justice, right? So when you have true restoration, we in order to have restoration, we have to say, what were the crimes? What's the punishment? And then how is and then how is it resolved? Well, the crime is that you sinned against the holy God. And how is it resolved? Jesus was punished for your sins. He took your sins and he rose again, burying them, has given you a full family relationship in his resurrection to the Father with these other folks too. It's all been restored. There's no more sin between the two of you. You're good. You're good. You're good. And with that reality, he says, and this is how you live together with one another, right? This is how we fix problems. We have a problem in the church. People aren't getting food. They should be getting food because these women are taking food. They're just throwing away the feast. It's not that we don't have problems, but we know how to fix it. Get some holy men from among you Mm. to work this out through the scriptures. So what it does is creates the community, creates the family, creates the structures in a society that has rejected all those things, abdicated all those things. And it starts to model for the world what the gospel looks like in time and space. And we've forgotten that as a church. We've forgotten. This goes back to the table. We've forgotten what unity looks like around a person. We forgot that he invites us to the feast regardless of our theological differences. The dividing marker isn't your theological tribe. The dividing marker is blood of Christ or no blood of Christ. Hmm. You got the blood of Christ? Come into the table. This is what unity looks like. And then as we sit here, let's work through biblically how we love one another. And so post-millennialism is that reality being worked out from the church and the family into society. So that critical race theory dies a death of a thousand cuts of love to each other. You know what I mean? And, and, oh, and it yeah. doesn't, you know, and so it, it takes in, uh, Pastor Wilson says this, he's like, love covers or it confronts. It covers or it confronts. And so it either covers a person's sin and says, you know what, brother, I know you didn't mean it like that. And even if you did, I forgive you. I love you. We're not even going to deal with it. Or it says, you know what? That's a problem. Let me go to my brother. It's Matthew 18. Hey, man. We got a problem. I love you to death, but this is the issue between us. Let's work it out. And it does it within the the authorities that are responsible for taking care of the problem. It doesn't do, it puts all those things right. Those fierce sovereignty that we were talking about, it puts it right and say, okay, who is the person I offended? I go to that person. If it's a civil issue, okay, we deal with it there. But it keeps things in place where the civil government isn't managing all the problems with everybody everywhere. It isn't Machiavellian where we say all the power needs to be central in one place. No, post-millennium splits that power and says there's a real government of the family. There's a real government of the church, a real government of the individual, a real government of the civil magistrate. Where is the offense at? And then let's deal with that offense in that government 
and then let's keep moving. And so it, it really separates the powers so that the government, the civil magistrate isn't worried about your health, welfare, isn't worried about your job issues, isn't worried about economics. It isn't worried about um, you can't get hired. That's none of his business. It's just none of his business. That's between the government of the families, the government of the church, the government of the self, right? That's where that stuff gets worked out. And the government says, unless there was a civil crime that was done to someone, I don't have no duties in there. So it works out the realities of the new kingdom internally from the ground up. That's probably the best way to say it. I said, I said that took so long to say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I love it. Okay. So I want to, I've got, let's see, three questions, I guess, in my head. I got Uh-oh. two quick reacts and then I got a question okay. to finish on. So the, the quick reacts are cultural. I want to see how good your cross politic game is today. We'll see oh, how no. uh, on top of things you are. So number one, this, this is old news, but I want to get your post-mill theonomistic take on this. Okay. Did Will Smith really slap Chris Rock and was it real? And what yes. should a post-mill Christian think about this? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, post, uh, so yes, it was a real smack. He really did hit him and it was real. Uh, and a post-mill Christian says, okay, what does God's law require when you destroy somebody's name, somebody's likeness? How do you make it right? How do you fix it? And it also does something else. It says Will Smith can be restored. He can be forgiven. He can be restored. Mm. And we can move on past this without canceling him. That's not what the gospel does. It actually brings people back into fellowship after sin. And it restores Mm. that. And it also says, hey, brother, I know that you smacked me. Is there something else going on in your family we need to be worrying about? It cares about that person as well. So um, those those are a quick take on, on all that. That's beautiful. Okay. I got another quick take. So we we've watched Cam Newton get eviscerated for some comments, women and certain kinds of women. I won't use the word that he used. You can look that up if, you, yeah. if you're interested, <laughs> but not nice women. Okay. Yeah. We're talking about not yeah. nice women. And, and Cam said some sort of patriarchal things about women. I want to get your take on what he said. And uh, if you, if you were alongside Cam, like you had his ear, what, what would you tell him? Shut up first. Like, don't talk. Uh, that'd be the first thing I tell Cam Newton to do. Like, um, you are just you are not talking. the person. Yeah, just stop talking. You you go get you go get hot playing football, go win some championships, go get married, have some kids, and go baptize them. That's what I tell Cam if I was sitting right next to him. <laughs> yeah, because I think um I think Greg Olson, right, was his teammate for a long time, and Greg said he would always give him grief because Cam's got like four kids with I think his girlfriend. Uh, not married. So Greg would always give him a hard time about that. Get married. Go, go devote yourself. Yeah, that's right. It's, but I do want to, there's a couple things. So I, a lot of people criticize Cam because of his hypocrisy. I thought that was worth criticizing. There's two things that I thought was really interesting. Cam Newton compared, um, um, these hot chicks, boss chicks to his mom and a woman that he wants to marry a, a valuable woman. He, he made a comparison. People forget that that's what he was doing. He wasn't just talking about women in general. He was talking about two different yeah. types of women. He was talking about these boss chicks who really want to be men and these other women who know what a woman is, who knows what a man is and wants to submit to a man. What was interesting about the conversation wasn't Cam Newton. It was what wasn't allowed to be said if it was Cam Newton or not, Cam Newton was just the hypocritical face that said something that was close to truth. Right. And it was interesting. What wasn't allowed to be said about defining what a woman was. And all I could think about was we are not allowed in this current state to talk about the metaphysic realities of our, of humans. 
men and women, both human, right? But we can't talk about it. We have removed the ontological realities and says if there's anything that's economically different about men and women, then therefore they're not human. That is what was scary about the Cam Newton thing is that we are, we tend to all be major, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson and don't know what a man and woman is. And it was really interesting watching Christians criticize Cam and still couldn't define what a woman was. And so I could talk about a Cam Newton thing pretty much all day. So I'll shut up on that. But yeah, basically Cam Newton, uh, it's not a spokesperson you want to have, but what he said wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just that he wasn't allowed to make the comparison period. Uh, last question though I have is, as you look at this cultural moment and you're, you're looking at guys in our camp, you're looking at post mill guys or, or people who are at least interested in this. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm a dispy, but I want to see dominion happen, whatever. Great. But for this camp, how do we take advantage of this cultural moment? Because I think, you know, like reading Doug Wilson, for example, for a long time, I was like, you could kind of see for a long, long years where it's like they were saying things and people were kind of listening and there was some, um, you know, momentum. But it seems like now there is a real moment where people's, a greater number of people's eyes are open. So I want to hear if you agree with that. And then what do we do? What can we do to capitalize on this cultural moment? Man, I might be so simple, but I think the first thing I want to do is take joyful responsibility for the mess. That's the first thing. When we are looking at our culture, I think it's easy for us to look at it, especially even people in our camp or people outside of our camp will look at this culture and will say, those people are a mess. Oh my goodness, those folks right there. Ugh. I don't think that we should do that. I think we should say, oh my goodness, we are a mess and Lord, I will take joyful responsibility mm. for this mess. That needs to be our context first, um, because responsibility and leadership comes to those, or should I say leadership comes to those who take responsibility for it, right? And so we want to take responsibility for it because we want to be able to fix the problem. That's first. The second thing, and I keep saying this, and it's, I, I, maybe I haven't said it well enough, but I'll try and say it again. We need to believe the promises of God. We need to be faithful and have faith in what God said is true. And that that has an implication all the way down and all the way up. There are promises that God has given to us and to our children in the word of God. And we need to believe those and we need to hold to those and we need to baptize our children and act like they're baptized and act like they live in the kingdom of God, the same way they live in the kingdom of America and treat them Mm. like citizens of the kingdom and expect them to act like citizens of the kingdom and teach them their lineage of the kingdom, that they are connected to Adam, that they are connected to Abraham, that they're connected to Jacob, that they're connected to Jesus, they're connected to Paul and Uncle Paul is awesome and they're connected to Gary DeMar and they have a lovely lineage of covenant of men who have been faithful and have not been faithful and have repented when they weren't faithful and this is what it looks like for you son in the future here goes your dragons here's the things that you're going to kill and I'm going to build the weapons for you now and teach you how to use them so that you know how to kill those kind of dragons believing the promises of God and having Mm -hmm. faith does something. It doesn't just assent to something in our mind. You do something. When when you believe Jesus is king of the world and that this is his world and right. that your job is to get busy being faithful in it, you go find around you, well, where am I not being faithful? In my home to my wife? Do I have the kind of joyful that reflects the Trinity? 
Right? Am I a joyful father? Do I take oh, pride in the loving of my wife and the loving of my children and the joy that naturally reciprocates to their home that nobody ever sees? If once we cultivate that, then it's game over. Our problem is what we're exporting, not what we're importing. <laughs> Right. We we haven't cultivated the joy of the Trinity in our home. And the whole purpose of mankind and whole purpose of the world is to reflect the joyfulness of the Trinity and is to grow up into the maturity of that joyfulness of the Trinity. And the place that that's modeled first is in the home. And so we need to cultivate and govern that sphere first really, really well. Really, really well. And until you get that done, don't worry about nothing else. I, I think we might have talked about this, and then I'll end with this. We talked about this. I really love the example in um, the first Zorro. And as he's, Zorro's learning mm. to, to engage, he wants to get to the outside world where the guy who killed his brother, you know, he wants to get to him. But there's this training area that was made for him by the old Zorro with three or four different circles. And he puts him in the small little circle in the middle and he tells him, he's like, Hey man, <laughs> this guy that you want to get to, he's six circles out. You're not ready for that yet. You can't engage that yet. Cause you don't have the training that you need to deal with him. This little small circle, th that's the circle that you work. You work that circle until you perfect that circle. And then after you perfect that circle, you expand it to a bigger circle, other challenges. You work that circle. And then after you work that circle and you perfect that when you move out a little further and it's, and that's the post mill world, right? It's smart. It starts here and it builds out over and over as you get better and perfected until the whole world is a circle, right? <laughs> and then you're in it. And then you get other enemies outside there that you get to kill, right? And you, cause you've been training, destroying little things, destroying tyrants in your home, right? Teaching your kids how to do it. Hey man, we take that kind of stuff to Jesus, right? That's how you kill CRT. You learn, you teach your kids to take sins to Jesus. They're, they're brotherly offenses between brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers. Take it to Jesus, squash it, let him kill it and then forgive each other and move on. Right. And so uh, that is, that's how we need to engage. And even if you're not post-millennial, that is nothing but the gospel itself. Then you might not hold to my eschatology, but if you don't do that, applying the gospel in your home. And and so whether you want to claim post-millennialism or not, I just need you to obey the gospel. <laughs> so I need you to do, I need you to submit to the gospel and have faith that the gospel is going to work its way out through humans as we submit to the Lord. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Some really good thoughts. Well, Chuck, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for giving us your time and uh, we will have to do it again sometime. Bro, I can't tell you it's a privilege to be here. I enjoy you and I appreciate you so much, man. So I, I, it makes me nervous coming on here. To be honest with you. <laughs> makes me nervous it does. coming on. It does. Oh, that, that's <laughs> awesome. That, that means you care. That's what they always told me. If you're nervous, that means you care. <laughs> I must care a whole lot then. <laughs> That's great. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the King's Hall Podcast. We are uh, we want to thank Chocolate Knox for being generous with his time and coming on and teaching us all and giving us so much to think about. And uh, we'd encourage you guys, if you haven't already, to head to kingshall.org and you can find some great ways to support this show, to become a patron and uh, gain access to our weekly After Hours episode that we ex release, record just for patrons there. And we talk about a lot, a lot of nitty gritty details 
and uh, all sorts of fun stuff there. We'll teach you how to do a toast as well at the end of each episode, or we'll fail at giving a toast and you can laugh at us. We also want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Reformation Heritage Books, and for their generosity and uh, teaming up with us for this episode. You can learn more about who they are and uh, why we're so glad to partner with them at heritagebooks.org. And uh, we would commend to you particularly their um, family worship materials that they have lots there that can help you disciple your kids and lead your family men uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. But until next time, uh, thanks for listening in and we will see you in the future.